0: Let's open the precious Word of God to Isaiah, the first chapter. Isaiah, chapter 1. The Lord and His providence has led us to consider this book of the Bible. We want to do it a little faster than we have covered New Testament books in the past, like Romans and the Gospel of John recently. It's a privilege, it's an honor it's humbling, it's exciting to open this book to you. I opened today's service with 1 Samuel chapter 3 for the purpose of those precious words there that Eli told Samuel to say to the Lord, Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. I hope and pray that every one of you Have that attitude toward Isaiah and toward Isaiah chapter 1. Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. God has chosen to speak to us this way by his word and by his spirit. He has chosen preachers to take his word and read in them distinctly and give the sense and cause hearers to understand his inspired and preserved words. So I have that role between him and you today, and I hope that you'll search the Scriptures to see if these things are so, that you'll prepare yourself on a weekly basis to know the book of Isaiah, that you'll pray for your pastor, and that you'll listen attentively, and I will provide outlines for review. Isaiah chapter 1. The book of the prophet Isaiah. The book you hold in your hands called the Bible means the books. Because there are 66 books in our Bible. There are 66 books in the Holy Scriptures. And Isaiah is one of them. So it's the book of the prophet. A prophet is a messenger from God. An ambassador from heaven. Words of God will be communicated by Isaiah to Judah and Jerusalem, and to us in writing. The theme for chapter 1. God hates backsliding and hypocrisy and will punish them. That's the theme of Isaiah chapter 1. God hates backsliding and hypocrisy and will punish those two sins and the sinners Engaging in them. If you look at the 31 verses in front of you, let me give you a brief outline of these 31 verses, and then we'll go through these eight sections, the Lord willing. Verse 1 is section 1, or section 1 has one verse. It's the introduction to the book of Isaiah. It's not the introduction to the first chapter. It's the introduction to the whole book. Then, the second section is verses 2 through 4. And it is God's formal indictment of Judah's backsliding. You may write these down. I'm sorry that I did not provide for you a little handy-dandy piece of paper with eight lines on it. The third section is verses 5 through 9. And you may look. That section is severe chastening, had not worked this far with Judah and Jerusalem. And God will note that. And that forces him to other methods for the recovery of his church. Section 4 is verses 10 through 15. God despises hypocritical religion. Section 5 is verses 16 through 20. God is perfectly fair in all His dealings with His people. Verses 21 through 24 are section 6. Backsliding described and backsliding threatened by the God of heaven. Verses 25 through 27, our section 7, a remnant will be purified and prospered. Different from everything else I've covered so far and what I will cover next. Then verses 28 through 31, our section 8, Judah's wicked will be destroyed. The theme again is God hates backsliding and hypocrisy and will punish those two sins. So we want to have those two words in our minds, backsliding, turning back, And going back from where God has led you, back into sin and back into worldliness and hypocrisy, going through the outward rituals, going through ceremonial religion, but not having a heart for it, nor a private life for it. There was a reason that the ten tribes were scattered by Assyria, and there was a reason Judah was taken captive by Babylon both events later, than this first chapter that reason is sin sin be sure your sin will find you out this book of Isaiah and this first chapter are addressed to the favored church of God it's not addressed to the ten tribes of Israel it's addressed to the two tribes of Judah these are the favored people of God this is his favorite part of the nation. This is the part of the nation through which Jesus Christ will come. This book is not addressed to the Philistines nor the Hittites, the Egyptians or the Edomites, other than in small sections of pure judgment. It's addressed to his church. We live in similar times. We live in similar, similar times of backsliding and hypocrisy By most churches and most Christians. But we're not responsible for those churches, we're responsible for ours. And so we want to make sure that we receive the warning, the promises of judgment for wrongdoing that are found in this chapter, and that we would keep our church from God's judgment. What a difference between Isaiah's opening words and Paul's opening words for good churches. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Isaiah had nothing like that to say to the church of God at this time. But Paul did. Let's be like the Philippians were to receive those words from Paul. Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. Section 1, which has one verse only. Verse 1, the introduction to the book of Isaiah. The vision, singular, Of Isaiah the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. The singular noun vision is a collective noun, meaning that there will be many visions in the book of Isaiah, but it's called the vision, just like in 1 Timothy, it is refers to the woman and it's referring to women. It's a proper way of using a noun, and it's used that way here. This verse is not introducing chapter 1. This verse is introducing the whole book because it, it pertains to His ministry under four kings. So notice that, please, about the word vision. Isaiah means salvation is of Jehovah. So this vision is from a man that God had arranged to be named, Salvation is of Jehovah. The opposite of Joshua, where it is Jehovah is Salvation. But he has a great name, and Salvation is certainly a theme in the book of Isaiah. And it's going to be referred to many times, whether it's by Hezekiah, or the angel of the Lord, or Cyrus the Persian, or Emmanuel, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's going to be many different salvations in the book. Isaiah is Isaiah of the New Testament, where this book is referenced 60 to 75 times, and his name is used 21 times as Isaiah. The Jewish scribes say that son of Amos means that Isaiah was the son of Amos, who was the brother of Amaziah, the king before Uzziah which means that Isaiah was the first cousin of Uzziah, but we don't know that from the Bible. That's only Jewish tradition. We mention it because we know that 13 references to the son of Amos must have some importance. Isaiah's ministry and his audience is given to us, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Judah are the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin, 176 years after Rehoboam caused a civil war and a split of the nation. There were two tribes that remained with Jerusalem and Judah, the tribe of David, and the other ten left because of Rehoboam's odious oppression of them. So this will be to Judah, and Jerusalem was its capital and the city of the great king. The name Israel, we will encounter it, or the other name for Israel, Ephraim, is used for the ten tribes with its capital at Samaria. Isaiah taught the southern kingdom of Judah with little mention of Israel, except in a few chapters. And they'll be easily identified. Hosea, the true contemporary of Isaiah, the first of the minor prophets, had his ministry to those ten tribes under the same four kings. At the very same time, Hosea is preaching in the north, and Isaiah is preaching in the south. The timing of Isaiah is precisely stated here, unlike some of the minor prophets that don't tell us very much. There are four consecutive kings of Judah. Uzziah, a good king. Jotham, a good king. Ahaz, a very bad king. Hezekiah, a very good king, are the four kings. They cover 113 years. We do not know how many of those years that Isaiah prophesied. Isaiah prophesied approximately 700 years in a round number before the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a corrected BC number. That is a right BC number in round terms. That is not a Ptolemy or Bishop Usher number. It is a correct number based on the Bible's own chronology. So we have a wonderful introduction in verse 1 that gives us an opening to the book, the author, the writer of it, the vision that he had from God, the kings that which he ministered under, and the subject of his writing and the subject of his preaching, which was concerning Judah and Jerusalem, God's favorite tribes, God's favorite people, how is God going to address His favorite ones? And He addresses them severely in this first chapter. We want to believe and we want to hope that God favors our righteous cause and that God favors us. But as we do that, let's remember this is how God would address us. This is how God would address the Christians of America. He would bless them for backsliding and hypocrisy. So let's go to section number two, or lesson two, whatever you want to call it, of this first chapter, and it's verses two through four. And I read to you verses two through four. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord hath spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knoweth his owner, and the ass his master's crib. But Israel doth not know. My people doth not consider. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors, They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. They are gone away backward. They are backsliders. Lesson number two, after the introduction, is the indictment, the formal sentencing and pronouncement of Judah's backsliding. Now verse two says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. It's an appeal to heaven or earth to indicate the solemn declaration God's about to make. And this is not the only time it occurs in the Bible. God, with Moses, used it many times in the book of Deuteronomy, appealing to heaven or earth to indicate a solemn declaration that he's about to make. Because when the God of heaven addresses his people, and he does call them my people, and I hope you notice that, this is going to be a serious pronouncement of judgment against them. And so he calls heaven and earth to be a witness of it. God spoke by His prophets. When it says, For the Lord hath spoken, those are wonderful words. I shared those words with you this past week because when you read those words, God is speaking to you. He spoke to His people and had the words written down for Him to speak to us 2,700 years later. Right. Amen. So God is speaking to us. For the Lord hath spoken. And here is what he spoke. But before we look at that, the words should impress you, for the Lord hath spoken. They should excite us. They should terrify us. When the great God of heaven, the Lord Jehovah, addresses men, he is a holy God. When Isaiah saw him in his glory in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah said, woe is me. That's terrifying. Then, The Lord said, Whom shall we send, and who will go for us? That was exciting. And Isaiah said, Here am I. Send me. So it should terrify us, and it should excite us. Similar descriptions occur well over a hundred times throughout Isaiah. Expressions like, Thus saith the Lord. Then Then it will be, Thus saith the Lord God. Then it will be, Thus saith the Lord God of hosts. Then it will be, thus saith the Lord God of hosts, the mighty one of Israel. Like verse 24. Look at verse 24. Therefore saith the Lord, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel. Ah. So we have a similar statement right there in 24. But what I'm trying to point out to you right now is reading distinctly and showing you the importance of God wanting you to know he talked to men. He spoke to men. He is speaking to you right now. This is how he chose to speak to us, by preaching his word. What did he say? I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. Whenever we hear the words of God from the Bible, we want to always remember they are the words of God. Paul once, in Acts chapter 17, said that the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians. But when he wrote the first epistle to the Thessalonians, he said the Thessalonians were special and he thanked God for them, because when they heard him preach, they did not consider the preaching the words of men, but as the words were in truth, the words of God. And so these are the words of God. This is how God looks at it. Now God can compare backsliding to various things. Do you know that God compares backsliding to pigs? Back to the mire. That God compares backsliding to dogs. Back to the vomit. That God compares backsliding to spiritual adultery. But here it's unfaithful children. And children not honoring their parents. I have nourished, and that's what parents do for us, and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. I thank God for saving me from the rebellious youth that I was to my father, who nourished me in things natural and spiritual, and I rebelled against him. But God saved me from it. It's a terrible thing. After all that parents do for children, if those children rebel, it is a cruel, terrible, unnatural, without natural affection thing that they do. God used this kind of a comparison in other places to convict His people about turning from Him. Remember what the Bible says about even a disrespectful eye. God will send eagles and ravens to eat the disrespectful eyes of children that dishonor their parents. And so that's in verse 2. This is God looking at His church and saying, I've nourished them, I've brought them up like my children, and they've rebelled against me. The ox, in verse 3, knoweth his master, his owner. The ox knoweth his owner. And the ass his master's crib. But Israel doth not know, my people doth not consider. You know, an ox does know his owner. He will come to the owner. He recognizes the owner. He does not leave the owner. He's ready for the owner to use him. And the ass knows his master's crib. A crib is a device, a storage device for corn or other food products for asses and oxen and other animals, for livestock. It's feed. They they know where to go to get something good for them. And Israel did not know where to go to get something good for them, so they were worse than the brute beasts. Where are you going for the pleasure in your life right now? Where are you going for the nourishment in your life? Is it your job? Is it this world's education? Is it a family? Is it children? Where are you going to find fulfillment? The real fulfillment is in God Himself. Right. He's the source of nourishment. Right. He's the source of vitality, nutrition, and power, and success in life. But Israel doth not know. This is what He is saying of His church. My church doesn't know me, as well as brute beasts know their owners and where to be fed. Dairy cattle take the same route every day. They know where they're going to be fed, and they know where they're going to be milked. And they will walk right into place and stand there time after time. And we're coming here time after time on the Lord's Day to be an assembly here, but we want to come knowing this is where we get fed. This is is where God can speak to us And help us Israel did not know now he's using the the title Israel here in the common way that it was understood as the people of God that came from the loins of Abraham Isaac and Jacob he is not using it in the specific political term of the ten tribes in the north with their capital at Samaria you'll see that back and forth and it's our job to rightly divide the word of truth verse 4 Ah, sinful nation a people laden with iniquity. Listen to the terminology he uses. A seed of evildoers. Children that are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel into anger. They are gone away backward. They have backslid. They have departed. They're evil. They're full of evil. They're covered with evil. They're burdened with evil. They're sinners. And the Lord blasts them in that fourth verse. ah, ah is a term of disgust and disrespect and resentment for a group of people. And he's talking about his church. Let him never say that about us. Let him never say that about us. Here is further indictment of the Jews for their sinful living in the land of uprightness. God's men preach like this. These are the kind of kind things God's men say to God's people when they're trying to get their attention about backsliding and hypocrisy. Read the first four phrases and then compare to Joel Osteen. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors. You know, most preachers today would never use terminology like that. But we shall and we must. God called Isaiah and all preachers in Isaiah 58 and verse 1 to lift up their voices and blast their trumpet. Against the iniquities of Judah and Jerusalem. Hypocrites hate such preaching, so they look for any way they can to avoid it. They'll play while preaching's occurring, they'll read while preaching's occurring, because they don't want to hear it. They hate the message, they hate the messenger. In this particular book of the Bible, those that don't want to hear the truth, will call for preachers that will preach to them smooth things. They don't want to hear things like this. So there is a chasm and a gulf between churches and between pastors then and now. Those that preach smooth things and make people happy, and those that preach these hard things and cause either repentance or rebellion. And either one is just fine. They had done three things Israel had, identified here as offensive to God, their father, and their master. They had forsaken Jehovah. They have forsaken the Lord. And remember, that Lord, with all capitals, is Jehovah. They had provoked God to anger. God can get angry, and God can get angry at His churches. Their hypocrisy and idolatry had angered Him, and they had backslid from former days of righteous living and proper worship. How could you backslide from David's days? How could you backslide from Jehoshaphat's days? They were terrific days in Judah. Prosperous days, joyful days, wonderful days. How could they turn away? Because sin is deceitful. And if we play with the world, it will take you down. And the world is everything you have in your life except the Lord Jesus Christ and his Father in heaven and the Word of God. It's the the world of our natural existence. We must have it, and it's okay to have it, and there's a proper way to treat every aspect of it, but it will take us away. The next lesson is in verses 5 through 9. Severe chastening had not worked. Let me read them to you. Why should you be stricken anymore? Ye will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick, and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even under the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your land, strangers devour it in your presence, and it is desolate, as overthrown by strangers. And the daughter of Zion is left as a cottage in a vineyard, as a lodge in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. Except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom, and we should have been like unto Gomorrah. That is a lot of chastening when the comparison is to Sodom and Gomorrah, because Sodom and Gomorrah was burned up, all of them except the four led out by the two angels. Verse 5, Why should you be stricken anymore? Why should I chasten you anymore in my ordinary way? You have pushed me to new measures. Do you know that you can push God? You can push God to good measures by obedience and prayer. Jacob wrestled with the Lord and won. Or you can push God to more severe measures in your life By not responding to his gentle chastening. So he says and asks, why should ye be stricken anymore? The answer is, it won't do any good. Ye will revolt more and more. You're just going to rebel. The more I push you, you're just going to blame me. Blame your circumstances and rebel against me. You people are messed up. So he says it this way by describing a body in the second half of verse 5 and all of verse 6. The whole head is sick. The whole heart faint. He doesn't say the head is sick, but the whole head. He doesn't say the heart is faint, but the whole heart. From the sole of the foot, that's the bottom of your foot, even unto the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. You have done nothing with the strickening that I have brought on this nation, you have not done anything to correct your disease. You're a diseased, putrefying mess. Right. And when God measures men, He measures them differently than we measure men. And I used this five weeks ago at a men's meeting when I tried to remind the men that God has His own way of measuring us. And if we measure men by a job, oh, a house, Kids, car, health, wealth, fitness, BMI. God doesn't care. He doesn't mention those things because He's looking for their love of His Son. Right. He's looking for their love of His standard of righteousness. He's looking for their kingdom service. So it becomes very different. So when God looks at men, He can say this about them. Remember the church at Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3? He said, you think you're rich, but really you're poor, naked, wretched, and blind because he looks at us very differently. Lord, help us look at ourselves and look in the mirror and look at each other the way you look at us. But he, they have pushed him to chastening and judgment that will be far more severe than they have had so far, though what they have had so far is pretty bad. Verse 7 says, your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Now the country wasn't entirely desolate. How do we know that and why would I say that when it says your country is desolate? Because in verses 10 through 15, he's going to be describing full temple worship taking place in Jerusalem with all the accoutrements of it all the different kinds of sacrifices. So they had lots of feasts to bring. There was still civil judgment taking place. In verse 23, thy princes are addressed and so forth. There's still functioning government. There is still a functioning temple. So this is not the time of Nebuchadnezzar after Nebuchadnezzar raised the city to the ground, but there are degrees of desolation. And so these degrees of desolation are his chastening thus far. And if you go back and read the history, thus, your pastor's encouragement to read 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, Shishak of Egypt came and desolated Judea. Then Israel came with the Syrians and desolated Judea or Judah. And there were other desolations as well in the two preceding kings. And these different passages of scripture that you can look at will be found in the notes. This cannot be after Nebuchadnezzar or Titus, though it sounds like it. If you just look at verse 7, your country is desolate. But were there times that Judah was desolated to a lesser degree than total desolation by other kings and other nations? Yes, indeed. And you can read about them. There is a number of them. Not just one, not just two, but several. And the Lord expects that when he chastens a nation that are his people, that he has blessed, like he did with David and Jehoshaphat, when these foreign kings come in and desolate the land, that they ought to get the idea that God's unhappy with them. But they weren't getting it. So he said, now what do I do? I've already desolated your place quite a bit. I mean, little Jerusalem now looks like it's a a cottage in a cucumber patch. You know, it looks like a besieged city. It looks like you've all fallen back to one place because your freedom and protection to expand out in your fenced cities is gone. And some of you just by those words will know of events that took place where the fenced cities of Judah were taken, but Jerusalem was spared. And so that is what verse 7 is saying in agreement with verse 5, because this is one lesson, verses 5 through 9. Why should I chasten you any more in my ordinary way? Because you haven't done a thing to fix your miserable condition, and I've already desolated you, so I guess the next thing is to just eliminate you. Just destroy you, overwhelm you, and burn you up. Except for a very small remnant which right here, we're tipped off again, right here, and Paul will pull this verse out. Isaiah 1, 9, Paul pulls this out and puts it in Romans 9, because that verse right there is so important. In the midst of all this hypocrisy, backsliding, and offending God, God can get angry, and God was angry with Judah and Jerusalem, yet He spared a very small remnant. Verses 7 and 8 are describing the pitiful condition of a nation which should have got their attention because God had reduced them. And that is a word that is used sometimes in the description that you'll find in Kings and Chronicles. He reduced them. He took away their prosperity. You know, every time you, you experience adversity or prosperity, you should look at it and consider it. Because God has arranged both to come into our lives to make sure we see nothing after him. They should have looked at their adversity that they were reduced to a cottage in a cucumber patch, a lodge in a garden of cucumbers as a besieged city and got the warning from heaven that they needed to repent. Except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant. We should have been as Sodom and we should have been like unto Gomorrah. If it hadn't been for God having His elect in Judah to have His Son come through Judah for you. To have His Son come through Judah for you, Gentiles, He'd have burned the whole place up because he was angry. And he, he is righteous when he even thinks that way. Right. Mm-hmm. When we look around at the state of Christianity in America today, we know that God has preserved us as a very small remnant. The Apostle Paul used this. Accept the Lord of hosts. Accept, accept, accept. That's an EX, not an AC. That's accept. If God hadn't made the difference we'd all be on our way to hell. If God hadn't made a difference, He would have just burned Judah to the ground. But He saved Jerusalem for His own sake and for His Son's sake and for the Gentiles' sake that would be brought into it. Next lesson, verses 10 through 15. This is lesson number 4. Verses 10 through 15, God despises hypocritical religion. God can't stand you attending church when you're not living all out for Him. Neither can we. Neither can I. But here it is in the Old Testament. I read to you beginning at verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord. So many times in this chapter and so many times through Isaiah, hear the word of the Lord. Will we hear? He's speaking. Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. That's what we should say, because he says to us, hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. What a beautiful literary device here of transition that the Holy Spirit takes the condemnation of Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 9 and turns it to describe the civil rulers that are left in Jerusalem. Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah, the only reason you've been preserved is because of God's electing grace, not because of your virtue or righteousness. To what purpose? Listen to this. This is God speaking. This is how God speaks and how his preachers preach. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me? Saith the Lord. There it is again. I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he goats, When ye come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hateth. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. And when ye spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when ye make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. They were guilty of sin. And this is how the Lord addresses backsliders and hypocrites. It is a terrible weakness because of Roman Catholicism and its influence as one main factor for us to think That coming into a building and sitting in that building on Sunday and having a religious ritual performed around us somehow pleases God. It angers God. It troubles God. It offends God. He hates it. He calls it vain. He calls it iniquity. He can't stand it. This is the truth of the Bible. And you know what? If you give it just one minute of intelligent thought, it is perfect wisdom. Because lip service and body service is nothing compared to heart service and mind service. He wants us to love Him with all of our minds, heart, soul, and strength. And He doesn't care about just coming to church every Sunday. And so He blasts them here this is the Word of the Lord, this is how God speaks. I do not exceed his example. I just don't want to come too short of it. So that when we stand before him, you'll say, I wasn't adequately warned. Because the Bible is so plain. Hear the word of the Lord, he says in verse 10. In verse 11, what is the purpose of this junk you do on Sundays? Of course, I'm applying it to you, I'm applying it to me. What's the purpose? These rams and the fat of fed beasts. You've fed your beasts. You've put money into them. You put a lot of money in the offering. Wow, I hate it. Why'd you do it? What's the purpose of it? I don't delight in it. But they were his commandments. We are supposed to come together on Sundays. We are supposed to assemble. But I don't want you to assemble if your hearts and minds are not with me. You've got blood in your hands. You're not seeking to relieve the oppressed. You're not serving others. It's not a list of murder, you know, knife murder, serial killers. It's going to tell us. It's sins that we can easily be guilty of. To what purpose do you do this? Verse 12, who's required it? Is it because your parents come here? Is Jonah Unger here because his parents make him? Who hath required this at your hand? To tread my courts. So in verse 2, what purpose is it? Verse 12, who's required it? Verse 13, I don't want any more of it. It makes me sick. Verse 14, I hate it. It's a trouble. I'm tired of even seeing it. Stop it. Verse 15, I'm not going to hear you. I'm not going to see you. Is Isaiah going to teach us the Lord's ears are not stopped and His hand is not shortened. But we have stopped up His ears and shortened His hand right. by our iniquities. Right. And so that is the lesson. And it's a powerful one. That is why we make pretty severe efforts to prepare on Saturday nights to come into this house that we'll be ready to worship Him and to love Him with all of our hearts, mind, soul, and strength. God hates hypocritical religion in verses 10 through 15, which brings us to the next lesson, verses 16 through 20. 16 through 20, wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do well, seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. The primary culprit in these sins is were the rulers. Notice verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. So everyone in a position of authority has greater responsibility because of those under them are simply reflecting that good or poor leadership. And so the instruction in verses 16 and 17 is all these little short clauses of imperative duties that they could do. And he says this in verse 18. Come now and let us reason together saith the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow; though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat the good of the land. But if ye refuse and rebel, ye shall be devoured with the sword, For the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. 16 through 20. What's the remedy? What's the remedy for God's hatred of their ceremonial, ritualistic religion, of verses 10 through 15. What's the remedy? It's the R factor. It's repentance. Repentance is a wonderful thing. Reformation is a wonderful thing. Conversion is a wonderful thing. And so all he is saying here in this lesson is I know you can tell I'm really angry because I am. And I just gave you a formal sentence and indictment of your hypocrisy and backsliding. And the trouble that you're in, I've been chastening you, but since it doesn't work, you know what's coming next is going to be terrible. All you have to do is change your conduct, because I am a fair God, and if you'll change your conduct, no matter how stained you are, no matter how scarlet you look or crimson you look, I'll make you white as snow and wool, we'll call it over I'll forgive you just like the Bible teaches us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful. He is faithful and just, meaning he is fair to forgive us our sins because he's a merciful God and all he's asking for us to do is learn to do well and stop sinning. That's all we've got to do. That is what these five verses teach. Do you know what everyone wants to do with these verses? They want to make verse 18 a memory verse. For some joy club, I meant Bible school or Sunday school, they want to make verse 8, see I, I learned verse 18 before I knew how to read. Isaiah 118, they want to make that verse and all they can think of is, the blood of Jesus washes me from all sin. But there's no Jesus and there's no blood in Isaiah 118. What is in Isaiah 118 is God's fairness Come now and let us reason together. If you'll repent and change your conduct, I'll forget what I want to do to you. And if you'll change your conduct and do what is right, I will bless you to eat the good of the land and you won't have strangers in it eating it and it will be better than a cucumber patch. That's what he's saying. But if you don't, I'm going to send a sword and it will devour you. You will not be left. And I think you know what happened, don't you? that he sent the sword. He sent the sword. He can send the sword in our church. He sent the sword. Let's do what it says, because he's fair. Verse 18 is simply stating his fairness. But because they see the word crimson, and they see the word scarlet, they think blood. It's because of the wordless book. Brother, have you ever seen the wordless book? I was taught the wordless book also before I could read there's nothing to read it's, act, it's actually a nice demonstration if they wouldn't bring isaiah 118 into it right. isaiah 118 does not have the blood of the lord jesus christ washing away our sins when we come on verses that has the blood of the lord jesus christ washing away our sins i will preach it as loud and as clearly as anyone but i and i know where they're found do you know where they're found they're found in the new testament and they're beautiful statements like Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5, who hath washed us from our sins in his own blood. Now, when I read that, guess what I preach? Being washed from our sins legally by Jesus Christ shedding his blood for us. But when I read this, all I see is, though you are really, really bad, as bad as cloth messed up as scarlet or in crimson color, I can still, like a fuller, make it white. And I'll do it if you'll repent. Wash you. It's not Jesus washing them. We can wash ourselves. It tells us to wash ourselves. In James chapter 4 and verse 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved. Let us cleanse ourselves. Oh, pastor, are you teaching self-salvation? I certainly am. Of the practical sort. Let us cleanse ourselves. Brethren, what is going on in your life that you ought to wash out of your life? Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Filthiness looks like scarlet or crimson. Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That is a choice. It was their choice. Make the right choice. I will bless you. Make the wrong choice. I'm over-chastening you. The sword's coming and it will devour you. This is the lesson of Isaiah chapter 1. It is severe, it is proper, it is fair. Let us reason together. Let us reason together. Do you think I'm too hard? Do you think I'm too hard? I've given you my law. I've nourished you and brought up children. You've rebelled against me. You can't even see me as well as brute beasts see their owners and their corn cribs. Your hypocritical religion is terrible. I've chastened you. You've got a reduced nation you're like a little besieged city. All that you've got left is Jerusalem. You're in a cucumber patch. It's terrible. Okay, you think I'm too hard? If you'll repent and do what is right, I'll make you absolutely clean. But they would not hear. Wash you. Make you Clean. This isn't God making them clean. This is what you need to do. Make you clean. Put away the evil of your doings. This isn't legal. This is practical salvation. This is conversion. This is reformation. This is repentance. Cease to do evil. But we believe in total depravity, Pastor. Not in this passage. This is practical ceasing to do evil. You can stop sinning. Learn to do well. Paul said, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. You can learn everything. Seek judgment. Relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though you are terrible, and I abominate your ceremonial religion, and I despise your wickedness, and you have provoked me to anger, I have nourished you, you treat me worse than brute beasts treat their owners, but... If you'll repent, I'll wash you completely free of your sin. If you're willing and obedient, you'll eat the good of the land. If you refuse and rebel, you're going to be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Amen. Next lesson at verse 21 through 24. Backsliding described and backsliding threatened with judgment. Do you see the offer in verse 18? Do you see the offer in verse 16 through 20? Repent. We believe in repentance for God's mercy. We don't believe in repentance to get our names in the book of life. But we believe repentance for God's mercy and God's favor and God's blessing. We believe we can stop sinning. We believe we can learn to do well. We can make choices every day that are contained in those little imperative clauses. We can do it. We should do it. Lord, help us to do it. 21. How is the faithful city becoming a harlot? That's an exclamation point because it is not a question. If I phrased it too much like a question, let me rephrase it better. How is the faithful city becoming a harlot? It was full of judgment. Righteousness lodged in it. But now murderers. Remember, your hands are full of blood. Thy silver is become dross, thy wine mixed with water. Thy princes are rebellious, and companions of thieves. one loveth gifts, and followeth after rewards. They judge not the fatherless, neither doth the cause of the widow come unto them. Therefore saith the Lord, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will ease me of mine adversaries, and avenge me of mine enemies. Amen and amen. He blasted them starting in verse 2 and ran that blast all the way through verse 15. He gave them an opportunity to repent in verses 16 through 20, and then he goes right back to the fact, because he knew their nature, they were not going to change. And so he blasts them again in 21 through 24. I hope you see this, how the chapter is progressing and how God is pressing his church of the Old Testament called Judah in the city of Jerusalem with their duties to repent and he would show mercy toward them. They could have their scarlet, crimson, stained clothes white as snow, reflecting their lives by their obedience. This is backsliding. How is the faithful city becoming a harlot? The faithful city, the city that loved God, the city that had the temple of worship to God, the temple where the people came together and praised God, offered their sacrifices, three feasts every year in Jerusalem, the faithful city, the good city, the church of Greenville city. A faithful city. Can we become a harlot? Yes. By loving the things of this world, If we're a friend of the world, we're the enemy of God. We become a harlot because He sees us flirting with His archenemy. God hates this world. God hates this world and the things in it that are worldly against Him. And when we flirt with those things and they become important to us, more important than they should be, we become a harlot with an exclamation point. It is not a question. God can hardly believe Of course he can believe, but he's stating it in such a way. What a change and transformation of backsliding that this great city of Jerusalem is now like a prostitute. It was full of judgment. It did what was right, equitable, and fair. Righteousness lodged in it. It always did what was right as defined by God, but now murderers, and the murderers are primarily the rulers, in that they are not protecting the oppressed and they're companions of thieves. Because it says at the end of verse 15, your hands are full of blood from a section that began with, hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers. What a change had taken place in Jerusalem. And so God is pointing that out. Do you understand that changes take place in your life? So the Bible tells us that when we lose our first love, when we lose our first love, then we become like a harlot. Then we're going through the motions. What does the Bible say? Remember from whence thou art fallen. Jerusalem had been a faithful city. Now Jerusalem was like a harlot. The Bible tells us it happens to us too. It happened to the church at Ephesus. It can happen to us. Remember from whence thou art fallen. When were you the most on fire for the Lord God of heaven and his son Jesus Christ? What was it like? Remember what it was like. Repent are the words in Revelation 2, 5. Repent and do the first works. And what is listed here in verses 16 through 20 are the first works. It's obedience. It's zeal. Be the faithful city again. It applies to us. I'm not going to preach this as some historical lesson only. It's in the word of God for our benefit. And all scripture is given by inspiration of God for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, which is what I'm trying to do right now with this passage of Scripture. This is God doing the remembering for them. How is the faithful city become an harlot? How have we slipped? When God sent Isaiah 6 to me at 19 with power, Lord, forgive me every time I have slipped from that level of zeal. Jerusalem is full of judgment. Everything they did was right and fair and equitable toward all. God's law is perfect. Righteousness lodged there. Righteousness just lived in Jerusalem, but now murderers. Thy princes are rebellious, companions of thieves. Everyone loveth gifts. Those are bribes. They follow after rewards. They're looking for a payment of money. They don't care about the fatherless. They don't care about the widow. They, don't, they neglect the causes that they don't want to get involved in because it'll just take too much time and be too big of a problem. They're thieves. They steal. They're rebellious. They're against the king. Did you read about Amaziah? How did Amaziah die? He was assassinated. How did his father Joash die? He was assassinated. These princes were rebellious against their kings. These princes were rebellious against God. These princes were rebellious against the law. They are companions of thieves. They're looking to embezzle, extort, and take advantage of others. They love bribes. They want to get paid for what they do. And they don't take care of the cases that would cause them a little bit of trouble. So God has a statement for them in verse 24. I will ease me of mine adversaries and avenge me of mine enemies. This is his church. These are men in his church that he's going to ease himself of because they are a trouble and a burden, as you have read. They're provoking him to anger. And he's going to get rid of this great irritation and frustration in his life by killing them let me chase that little lesson in verse 22 thy silver has become dross. how do you make silver you take ore that has silver in it and you refine away all the draws all the dross is all the junk that isn't silver so once you get rid of all the drunk that, all the junk that isn't silver then you have pure silver left and backsliding is like taking the dross and adding it back into the silver really stupid right really really stupid how's the faithful city become a harlot if we put the dross back in with the silver, then look at something, just a little, just a little hint. We always want to read every word of God. God says it is equally stupid to dilute wine with water. But that is the exact opposite of what you do with wine. You get that juice off the grape and you let it ferment because you want that alcohol level as high as God will allow it to run, which is 14% for grapes today. You can't, you can't get it above 14%. You don't add water back in. When you meet a teetotaler that doesn't know their Bible, but they know their agenda, and they have listened to some temperance women, they will tell you that all the wine in the Bible was so diluted with water that you would have to drink 15 quarts in order to get a little tipsy. The strange thing is that everyone that drank that kind of stuff in the Bible got drunk, That, that drank too much of it got drunk. The strange thing is that God's ridiculing adding water to wine, that would ruin a vineyard. What in the world would you have a vineyard for? Oh, you're going to sell frozen we- welches at uh, Whole Foods or something? Just a little lesson. Don't ever forget 122 for those of you that ever run into somebody that you've got to deal with and you want to show them the Bible study. I don't care about whether you drink or not. You know that. God doesn't care. He's not re- no one's requiring you to drink. There's no, there's no pressure in this church to drink. The point is that when you've got to debate this with somebody or discuss this with someone and you want to show them how they're not using the Bible correctly and they've been led astray, this is a great verse to remember. You don't add water to wine. It's as foolish and stupid and contrary to nature and contrary to the identity of things and assets as adding dross back to silver, which you would never do or even consider it. It's a great little verse, but it's not the point. The point is backsliding is like taking wine, a nice 14% alcohol wine and adding water to it until you've got it down to some 2% wine cooler and you've just ruined it. You say, I like wine coolers. Well, I'm sorry. (laughs) I hope you can see the serious lesson. Therefore, the Lord had important things to say to them in verse 24. Ah, you make me sick I will ease me of mine adversaries. I will no longer put up with them and avenge me of mine enemies. Verses 25 through 27 are the next lesson. And it's another little bit of hope thrown out in this chapter. Just like we had up above in verses 16 through 20. Verse 25, And I will turn my hand upon thee and purely purge away thy dross and take away all thy tin, And I will restore thy judges as at the first and thy counselors as at the beginning. Back to the faithful city. Afterward thou shalt be called the city of righteousness. The faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed with judgment and her converts with righteousness. Now God's going to get rid of his enemies in verse 24. He's going to avenge himself and get rid of the wicked ones. But his elect remnant that were up there in verse nine, except the Lord of Sabaoth, or except the Lord had left us a very small remnant, we'd have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. There were some elect that he's gonna take into Babylon, preserve them there, purify them there, get get the dross back out of their lives, bring them back, and Jerusalem in its second go-round is gonna be the faithful city again. And that's what you can do with repentance. And that's what you can do with God's grace you can, don't let, don't anyone ever think that any sin or any period of sin can so mess you up that you can't be useful for God again. This is first the faithful city, then the harlot, then back to the faithful city. Do you see the terminology? It's, the Lord's teaching us very simply here. You were once the faithful city. I've got to get rid of all mine enemies because these murderers These rulers of Sodom and Gomorrah that are in the city of Jerusalem, I'm going to kill them off. Go read the book of Jeremiah uh, about how the Lord took care of the rulers of Jerusalem in the last days before Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, what did they do to Jeremiah? Put Jeremiah in prison. Go read what happens to them in the book of Jeremiah. I will turn my hand upon thee for good. Verse 25 is for good and purely purge away thy dross I will get rid of the impurities in your life. I will take away thy ten. That's a cheap metal. I will restore thy judges at the first. The Hezekiahs, the Maccabees, the Zerubbables, the Joshua, the high priests, the ones that we can read about in these prophets that stretch to Malachi. I will restore them. Afterward, thou shalt be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. They rebuilt the temple. It was a great city. The Lord Jesus Christ visited it. And yes, We can read in these verses enough that it's just going to keep on an upward climb until it turns into spiritual Jerusalem and the Lord Jesus Christ is the righteous judge of it. But look at the hope held out in verses 25 through 27 and then Isaiah the prophet goes right back to the wicked in the final lesson which is verses 28 through 31. Verse 28 and the destruction "...of the transgressors and of the sinners shall be together. I will get rid of my wicked enemies, and they that forsake the Lord shall be consumed." Nebuchadnezzar did it. "...for they shall be ashamed of the oaks which ye have desired, and ye shall be confounded for the gardens that ye have chosen. For ye shall be as an oak, whose leaf fadeth, and as a garden that hath no water. And the strong shall be as tow, and the maker of it as a spark." And they shall both burn together, and none shall quench them. So there are those in verses 25 through 27, the elect remnant, God is going to purify. By chastening and taking them to Babylon for 70 years, He's going to bring them back, Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, Joshua, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, Maccabees. He brought them back but there's another group here that he still has to get rid of that he mentioned in verse 24, I will ease me of mine adversaries and avenge me of mine enemies. And they are verses 28 through 31. The destruction of the transgressors and of the sinners, the ones he's been describing, the rulers of Sodom and Gomorrah, the murderers, the ones with blood in their hands, the chief ones among the people, the princes that were rebellious against the king, God, and the law, he's going to get rid of them together. And they that forsake the Lord shall be consumed. He will consume and burn them up. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks which ye have desired. The oaks. Look at Ezekiel 6.13. We're almost done, but I want to turn you to one passage. I have tried to stay uh, with Isaiah chapter 1, but this one passage might be helpful. When we think of the trees used in false worship in Israel, we often limit ourselves to every green tree. And we like to slide the words together, evergreen tree. <laughs> but uh, every green tree, we, we tend to limit ourselves, and so I want to expand it out again. That th- there, There's oaks that they liked, groves of oak. D- does everybody here like a nice oak tree? Groves of oak trees was a pagan thing and a Jewish thing. You say, show me, okay? I- Isaiah 6.13, Then shall ye know that I am the Lord. Ezekiel 6.13, Then shall ye know that I am the Lord when their slain men shall be among their idols round about their altars upon every high hill in all the tops of the mountains and under every green tree and under every thick oak, the place where they did offer sweet savour to all their idols. So thick oak trees were also used. So when we're over here in Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 29, they're going to be ashamed of their oaks. Because they went out to their oak trees and they offered incense and they offered oblations and sacrifices in their grove of oak trees. And oak trees are nice. But they're gonna be ashamed of the oaks because the oaks aren't gonna protect them and save them from being consumed because the God of heaven's gonna consume them. And it won't matter how many times they cry to their oak trees or how many times they offer incense under oaks, they're gonna be consumed. Ye shall be confounded for the gardens that ye have chosen. And gardens were also used when you didn't go to a high place to have a grove of oak trees. You would have a garden at your place where you'd put a little shrine. If you've ever been to a good Catholic's house, they'll have a garden in the backyard and a shrine to Mary or someone else back there. And so it was in the times of the Jews. You're going to be ashamed and you're going to be confounded for your confidence that you put in false worship because it's not going to be able to save you when I ease me of mine adversaries and avenge me of mine enemies. Second, very creative play on words. Watch. For ye shall be as an oak. Now, wait a minute. He was using oak in a very different way in verse 29. He was using it as a grove of oak trees, but, but you're, I'm going to make you like an oak whose leaf fadeth. That's a dead, seasoned oak. Mm-hmm. Now, for those of us who have had fireplaces and ever heated with wood, you loved the combination of these two words. Seasoned oak. Because there's hardly anything like it for burning. Ye shall be as an oak whose leaf fadeth and as a garden that hath no water. What does a garden look like that has no water? No irrigation system, no supply of water. It's terrible, it's ugly, it's destroyed. It has no vitality, it's over. It's history. And so the Lord is saying, oh, you like oaks, you like gardens, you put your confidence in them. They're not going to save you from my judgment. I'm going to make you like an oak whose leaf fadeth a dried out oak. And you're going to be like a garden that hath no water. Do you know what a garden looks like when it's had no water? All the flowers and other plants turn to weeds or whatever you want to call them. And they burn oh so quickly. Do you like the play on words here? Is this pretty good? It's the Holy Spirit. It's not me and it's not Isaiah. And the strong shall be as tow. What is tow? Flax to make ropes. Have you ever put a match near a rope? a flax rope or a hemp rope, put a match near it and watched how fast those little, fi- remember what a rope is made of It's just a whole bunch of little small fibers and as soon as that match gets nears it, gets near those little tiny fibers, they burn. And the strong, the civil rulers among you, the princes, the mighty, the wealthy, the important, the, the popular, the famous among you that were involved in this hypocritical worship, the strong shall be as toe. You'll be like hemp, flax, rope, and the maker of it, those that made these oak groves and gardens and false worship and idols, shall be the spark. I'm gonna put you two together, spark and hemp, spark and rope, and they shall both burn together, and none shall quench them. And so it happened, and that's Isaiah chapter one. What is Isaiah chapter one? God hates backsliding and God hates hypocrisy. Let us not come in here and play the hypocrite. Let us not backslide from what God has taught us, shown us, and what we've done in the past. We've been a faithful church. Let's stay a faithful church. Even if you sin, even if your family sins, even if our church sins, if we repent, He is able to make our crimson and scarlet red perfectly white. He is able to make us eat the good of the land. The faithful city that became the harlot can become the faithful city again by repentance he is a fair God. Come, let us reason together, saith the Lord. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.